Book Two, Chapter Five of History of the Reformation in the Sixteenth Century, Volume One, by Jean Henri Mel d'Aubigne, translated by Henry Beveridge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five, The University of Wittenberg, First Employment, Biblical Lectures, Sensation, Preaching at Wittenberg, The Old Chapel, Impression. In the year 1502, the elector Frederick had founded a new university at Wittenberg, declaring, in the act by which he confirmed it, that he and his people would turn to it as towards an oracle. He thought not at the time that these words would be so magnificently realized. Two men belonging to the opposition which had been formed against the scholastic system that is, Pollock of Mellerstadt, doctor of medicine, law, and philosophy, and Staupitz, had great influence in founding this school. The university declared St. Augustine its patron, and even this choice was a presage of good. In possession of great freedom, and regarded as a tribunal to which, in cases of difficulty, the supreme decision belonged, this new institution, which was in every way fitted to become the cradle of the Reformation, powerfully contributed to the development of Luther and his work. On his arrival at Wittenberg, Luther repaired to the convent of Augustines, where a cell was allotted him for, though professor, he ceased not to be monk. He was appointed to teach philosophy and dialectics. In assigning him these departments, regard had no doubt had been to the studies which he had prosecuted at Erfurt, and to his degree of Master of Arts. Thus Luther, who was hungering and thirsting for the word of life, saw himself obliged to give his almost exclusive attention to the scholastic philosophy of Aristotle. He had need of the bread of life which God gives to the world, and he must occupy himself with human subtleties. How galling! How much he sighed! I am well by the grace of God, wrote he to Braun, were it not that I must study philosophy with all my might. Ever since I arrived at Wittenberg, I have eagerly desired to exchange this study for that of theology. But, added he, lest it should be thought that he meant the theology of the time, the theology I mean is that which seeks out the kernel of the nut, the heart of the wheat, and the marrow of the bone. Howbeit God is God, continues he, with that confidence which was the soul of his life. Man is almost always deceived in his judgment, but he is our God, and will conduct us by his goodness for ever and ever. The studies in which Luther was at this time obliged to engage were afterwards of great service to him in combating the errors of the schoolmen. Here, however, he could not stop. The desire of his heart must be accomplished. The same power which formerly pushed him from the bar into the monastic life now pushed him from philosophy towards the Bible. He zealously commenced the study of ancient languages, especially Greek and Hebrew, that he might be able to draw science and learning at the fountainhead. He was all his life an indefatigable student. Some months after his arrival at the university, he applied for the degree of Bachelor in Divinity, and obtained it in the end of March 1509, with a special injunction to devote himself to biblical theology, ad biblia.
Every day at one, Luther had to lecture on the Bible, a precious employment both for the professor and his pupils, giving them a better insight into the divine meaning of those oracles which had so long been lost both to the people and the school. He began his lectures with an exposition of the Psalms, and shortly after proceeded to the Epistle to the Romans. It was especially when meditating upon it that the light of truth entered his heart. After retiring to his quiet cell, he spent hours in the study of the divine word, the epistle of St. Paul lying open before him. One day, coming to the seventeenth verse of the first chapter, he read these words of the prophet Habakkuk, The just shall live by faith. He is struck with the expression. The just, then, has a different life from other men, and this life is given by faith. These words which he receives into his heart as if God himself had there deposited them unveils the mystery of the Christian life to him, and gives him an increase of this life. Long after, in the midst of his numerous labors, he thought he still heard a voice saying to him, The just shall live by faith. Luther's lectures, thus prepared, had little resemblance to those which had hitherto been delivered. It was not a declamatory rhetorician or a pedantic schoolman that spoke. It was a Christian who had felt the power of revealed truth, truth which he derived from the Bible and presented to his astonished hearers, all full of life as it came from the treasury of his heart. It was not a lesson from man, but a lesson from God. This novel exposition of the truth was much talked of. The news spread far and wide and attracted a great number of foreign students to the recently founded university. Even some of the professors attended the lectures of Luther, among others Mellerstadt, often surnamed the Lights of the World. He was the first rector of the university and had previously been at Leipzig, where he had vigorously combated the ridiculous lessons of the schoolmen and, denying that the light of the first day of creation could be theology, had maintained that this science ought to be based on the study of literature. This monk, said he, will send all the doctors to the right about. He will introduce a new doctrine and reform the whole church, for he founds upon the word of God and no man in the world can either combat or overthrow this word, even though he should attack it with all the weapons of philosophy, the sophists, scotists, albertists, thomists, and the whole fraternity. Staupitz, who was the instrument in the hand of providence to unfold the gifts and treasures hidden in Luther, invited him to preach in the church of the Augustines. The young professor recoiled at this proposal, he wished to confine himself to his academic functions, and trembled at the thought of adding to them that of preacher. In vain did Staupitz urge him. No, no, replied he, it is no light matter to speak to men in the place of God. Touching humility in this great reformer of the church. Staupitz insisted, but the ingenious Luther, says one of his biographers, found fifteen arguments, pretexts, and evasions to excuse himself from this calling. The chief of the Augustines, still continuing his attack, Luther exclaimed, Ah, doctor, in doing this you deprive me of life. I would not be able to hold out three months. Very well, replied the vicar-general, so be it in God's name. 
for up yonder also our Lord has need of able and devoted men. Luther behoved to yield. In the middle of the public square of Wittenberg was a wooden chapel, thirty feet long by twenty wide, whose sides, propped up in all directions, were falling to decay. An old pulpit made of fir, three feet in height, received the preacher. In this miserable chapel the preaching of the Reformation commenced. God was pleased that that which was to establish his glory should have the humblest origin. The foundation of the Church of the Augustines had just been laid, and until it should be finished this humble church was employed. This building, adds the contemporary of Luther who relates these circumstances, may well be compared to the stable in which Christ was born. It was in this miserable enclosure that God was pleased, so to speak, to make his beloved Son be born a second time. Among the thousands of cathedrals and parish churches with which the world abounded, there was then only one which God selected for the glorious preaching of eternal life. Luther preaches, and everything is striking in the new preacher. His expressive countenance, his noble air, his clear and sonorous voice captivates the hearers. The greater part of preachers before him had sought rather to amuse their auditory than to convert them. The great seriousness which predominates in Luther's preaching, and the joy with which the knowledge of the gospel has filled his heart, give to his eloquence at once an authority, a fervour, and an unction which none of his predecessors had. Endowed, says one of his opponents, with a keen and acute intellect, and a retentive memory, and having an admirable facility in the use of his mother tongue, Luther, in point of eloquence, yielded to none of his age. Discoursing from the pulpit as if he had been agitated by some strong passion, and suiting his action to his words, he produced a wonderful impression on the minds of his hearers, and, like a torrent, carried them along whithersoever he wished. So much force, gracefulness, and eloquence are seldom seen in the people of the North. He had, says Bossuet, a lively and impetuous eloquence which hurried people away and entranced them. In a short time the little chapel could not contain the hearers who crowded to it. The Council of Wittenberg then made choice of Luther for their preacher and appointed him to preach in the town church. The impression which he produced here was still greater. The power of his genius, the eloquence of his diction, and the excellence of the doctrines which he announced equally astonished his hearers. His reputation spread far and wide, and Frederick the Wise himself once came to Wittenberg to hear him. Luther had commenced a new life. The uselessness of the cloister had been succeeded by great activity. The liberty, the labour, the constant activity to which he could devote himself at Wittenberg completely restored his internal harmony and peace. He was now in his place, and the work of God was soon to exhibit its majestic step. End of Book 2, Chapter 5